My name is Scott Chaloner and you are listening to the Leaders' Council podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. As regular listeners of this programme will know, part of our mission here at the Leaders' Council is to bring you a variety of different perspectives on leadership and the issues that matter to you. And today that mission takes us to New Ollerton, Nottinghamshire, where we have Angela Noll joining us, Executive Director at Pathfinder Specialist and Complex Care. Uh, Pathfinders provide specialist care for people with complex rehab care needs from slow stream rehabilitation right through to end of life care. Um, Angela, very warm welcome to yourself today and by all means thank you for joining us on the show. It's a pleasure having you. Thank you Scott. It's, uh, I'm delighted to have been invited. Thank you. It's our pleasure Angela and um, I understand as well that you've been with Pathfinders since its inception back in 2008 having founded the business and essentially you've kind of built that provider from being a startup based on a disused mining site to a fully operational care company that it is today. Um, but you weren't always working um, in the care sector, uh, were you? I mean, I understand that your sort of background is in sort of the railway industry and in sort of factory safety project management in the past. So I'd just be interested before we kind of move on as to what was it that kind of made the decision for you to essentially cross into the care industry and sort of start your own provider? Well, actually, I originally um, trained as a nurse. Mm. Uh, I did my, uh, um, well, back in the day, it was called State Registered Nurse, uh, which is probably giving my age away a bit. Um, so I trained as a State Registered Nurse um, at Leeds Infirmary. Um, and then I went to Huddersfield to Stores Hall and completed my uh, mental health nursing. Uh, so actually, I'm a dual qualified nurse, but then left, uh, uh, due to personal circumstances, left. Um, nursing uh, and mm. actually uh, started to build a typesetting company with my husband um, who unfortunately passed away um, uh, with a, a very debilitating disease um, uh, and it was quite traumatic um, but I at that point um, through a, a whole series of um, coincidences ended mm-hmm. up working uh, uh, for one of the Bob Reed teams uh, in uh, British Rail primarily uh, initially uh, to look at uh, the efficiency of the East Coast Main Line um, and they were just setting up um, and again giving my age away somewhat uh, things like quality circles and, and continuous improvement methods uh, and I became heavily involved in that before moving on to helping to set up European passenger services. Absolutely fantastic. And obviously that experience, I can imagine, has sort of really helped you when it's come to sort of building your own care provider. And one thing as well that I know that Pathfinders has addressed very well is sort of that current issue around recruitment in the care industry um you have a lot of sort of best employment practices in order to kind of keep staff turnover low and absence levels down and a lot of that includes an emphasis on sort of training and career development obviously the issue around sort of workforce in the industry 
that's something that was notably absent in a recent piece of legislation trying to sort of deal with the challenges that the health and social care sector is facing in the form of that health and social care bill that has of course now gone to uh, to royal assent um what are sort of your thoughts around that piece of legislation particularly around its sort of focus or lack thereof on workforce challenges i i think uh, personally they've missed the trick um and i think they've done that because the people putting that document together i don't think have got a, a really fundamental understanding of how the social care sector works um my own business we get lumped together as being a care home and automatically it's assumed that we're care of the elderly Mm. when in fact all of the people who come to pathfinders care are actually of working age um and in fact most of them are in their 30s 40s and 50s um and so are very far from being elderly and have got very different much more modern needs Um, and the staff looking after them have to be extremely skilled uh, in what they do. There is no such thing as an unskilled carer. Um, The amount of training that it requires, we require six months. Somebody's uh, initial training lasts for six months, uh, which is why we put such a heavy emphasis on retention, uh, because obviously it's a very expensive and time-consuming thing to do. Uh, but also from the person who's participating in that, the employee, um, they're having to put a great deal of commitment into that as well. Um, They often haven't come from a terribly good educational background because it seems to be, you know, go and flip burgers or go into the care industry. um, And it has a very, very low status when in fact it's actually a highly skilled job. I think the legislation has not taken into account just Mm. how highly skilled it is. And it's not just uh, a one-size-fits-all. And also, it's not a one-off piece of training that people need to do. It's something that they need to continuously develop with. Absolutely right. Um, I think there is a real, real problem with how the industry is perceived and the fact that it has long sort of been undervalued and treated as sort of a low skilled industry when in fact on the ground it's the very, very opposite of that because there are a lot of sort of not just physical skills that you need to carry out care but also those soft skills as well working with those that receive it. Um, Obviously, with the lack of sort of focus on raising the status of care, how do we kind of change the narrative around the industry from here to try and sort of deal with that issue from your perspective? I think it actually needs to start um, in school. I think it needs to be presented as a true career option. Uh, But there are a couple of barriers to that. Firstly is um, traditionally... Uh, it has always been seen as a very low value uh, uh, thing to go into. Um, Secondly, not all care providers actually do provide good levels of training or have career pathways. So we can't um, just assume that everybody is going to be going into a care system uh, to work uh, and will be provided for. For example, at Pathfinders Care, we have put in place 
uh, career pathway for every single um, post that mm. is uh, at Pathfinder Scare. So if you wanted to join as a receptionist, uh, there are there is a business skill um, level. So for example, we've had people start as receptionists, and in fact, my uh, senior bookkeeper now has actually travelled right the way through uh, much of um, what she can do before she would need to, perhaps her next training would be formal accountancy training, which I know she doesn't want to do that. Um, but she, the option is there if she wanted to do it. Um, the carers who come to us often are coming from backgrounds which are very different to caring because we recruit for attitude and train for skills. So we get people who've worked at chicken farms or picking vegetables or flipping burgers or, uh, but equally we have people who've come to us as teachers uh, or from other professions to be carers. Um, and we put them onto our, what we call our skills passport of bronze, silver and gold. Um, and this is a whole set of skills within each level of the passport which are about technical skills within care, but they're also about some of the softer skills. I don't know why they call them softer skills, because they're very difficult. It's very difficult to um, really understand what patience and tolerance means. And mm. although some of it has to be, and, and to be non-judgmental, uh, and that sort of level of professionalism that we expect of people, you've got to have the raw ingredients there in terms of your value set, but equally, it's something that has to be really pushed in the training. And we do that in bronze, silver and gold. So there is soft skills training and technical skills training and competence assessment as part of bronze, silver and gold. And each level of that um, is assigned to a different level of staffing, different skill mixing and a different point on a pace sign. So somebody could come to us. Uh, we, are, we are actually a real living wage employer. Mm. Um, but um, that starts now at £9.90. But in fact, um, a skilled carer could uh, easily be earning £11.05 plus, which is a long way from earning the minimum wage. And I think mm. that actually putting your money where your mouth is uh, is very important in terms of saying these jobs are worth something and the people doing these jobs are worth something. We also make sure that we follow um, code of conduct from ACAS in terms of employing our people so that, again, people know that they're going to be treated fairly. And I know that the things that I've put in place aren't generic across the piece uh, with all healthcare providers. I think it's really important that if we are going to say that these people are worth something, that we actually back that up in terms of their terms and conditions. Mm. I think that's very right, isn't it? Because we're seeing a lot of care staff becoming disillusioned and essentially dropping out, having sort of high rates of absence because, you know, they're burnt out following the COVID-19 pandemic. And in a lot of cases, they're probably not being remunerated to the level they deserve because of the underfunding within the industry. So financially, there are also some real issues elsewhere. And um, it's very positive as well that at Pathfinders, that's something that you've sort of really seen to address in that sense. I think it also does mean that we've got very low levels of staff turnover mm. and very low levels of sickness 
an absence. Um, the staff are extremely dedicated uh, to their patients, but it's very difficult for them because they've had to work extraordinarily hard um, and in really quite harsh conditions over this last two plus years through the pandemic. Wearing PPE all of the time is tiring. Um, and it took it took a while to adjust, uh, but it is still tiring to wear PPE. You have to put extra effort into how you communicate because you're well, a large part of your face is covered, mm. and for a lot of our patients, that makes communicating very difficult indeed. It does, doesn't it? Because you can miss a lot of the uh, you know the sort of non-verbal cues can't you that your carer is giving if their face is uh, covered and that was just one of the many challenges that we saw that carers had to face over the uh, the last couple of years um i do want to sort of go into uh, into covid in a little bit to more detail um in terms of how it affects your ability to kind of plan for the future because everything was sort of changing in such a short space of time but before we sort of move on to kind of strategic planning what were the sort of operational issues that sort of you found yourself dealing with, particularly early on in the uh, the pandemic? I think it would be remiss if we didn't talk about that. So the difficulties early on, um, we closed Pathfinder's Care uh, very early on. Uh, so in the February, in the January, actually, I called a conference uh, with our um, local um, GPs, infection prevention control people and a number of other people and said, look, this is what we can see happening in China and it's either going to hit us uh, or it isn't. You know, and this has happened a number of times where we've seen uh, uh, different flu strains, for example, uh, coming out of, of different countries uh, and it's, they've managed to contain it and it hasn't got anywhere. Um, and so you're constantly having that judgment call of, is this going to happen? Isn't this going to happen? But on this particular occasion, um, I, I had a very strong feeling that this was going to happen. So in January, I called this conference uh, and I'd asked my uh, heads of department to each tell me what they would do in cases of staff absences or high uh, numbers of deaths within the home. Uh, and in fact, was told by uh, the external people attending that, in fact, I was being a drama queen and that this was quite a ridiculous thing to be planning, mm. uh, which, of course, it turns out it absolutely wasn't. At that point in January, we actually started stocking uh, extra PPE. And I'm really glad that we did because for a period of eight weeks, we couldn't get a single item of PPE. Um, and because of the sort of um, high aerosol generating procedures that we often have within the home, that really did or could have posed a very serious problem for us. As it is, because of our foresight and planning, we never at any point were short of PPE. And just as it looked like we were going to become short of gloves, um, we actually had a massive um, delivery, which was organised by the Daily Mail um, because they were actually giving PPE to care homes. And they came and dropped off a huge pallet of PPE, uh, which we were really grateful for. Um, 
But we were very fortunate that because of our foresight and planning and because of that delivery, we never at any point were short of PPE. Um, but I know that all of the other homes, the GP surgery, the pharmacists around us, didn't have the PPE that they needed uh, in order to maintain safety. Mm, and like I say, that there, is... There, yeah. there are so many different issues that were difficult. Mm. Um, and another one that really sort of sticks out quite prominently, we were fortunate in that we had just put in place um, a staff communication. So I've got 260 staff. Mm -hmm. And we've just put in place a staff communication system so that everybody um, could receive simultaneously messages about what was going on and what we were doing. And that was really useful because uh, that use of technology was really important um, because it meant that as the government guidelines changed, and sometimes they were changing a couple of times a day, or they were changing last thing at night or last thing on a Friday for implementation on a Monday, that we were able to get all of those messages and put everything in place so that we could follow the guidelines very closely. I am reluctant to criticise the government on some of that mm. because it was a very unique situation, a very difficult situation where nobody truly understood what was going on and what was happening. We weren't really learning the lessons that had been learned um, overseas with things like SARS and MERS. Um, but equally, we have got different circumstances and a different sort of culture uh, to where those sorts of things have happened. So I do understand that it was a very difficult situation, but it wasn't made any easier by the fact that our local authorities and our CCGs would also have their interpretation of what they thought the guidelines meant as well. So we would get the government guidelines, the local authority guidelines, and the CCG guidelines, and that might also be different to what came out of NHS England. So my senior team and I ended up spending huge amounts of time trying to interpret what it was that people thought we ought to be doing um, and putting that in place and then making sure that all of the staff, all of the patients, all of our relatives and anybody who were supplying services to us were actually being compliant with our interpretation of what those guidelines were. So it was not an easy task given that those guidelines were changing sometimes a couple of times a day, sometimes several times a week and often late at night. Yeah, of course. I think the timing of the advice and the crossed wires of the advice coming from various different sources was a very difficult issue for sort of care sector leaders to but try I, and get I around. To, I have to say, though, uh, Nottinghamshire Local Authority hmm. um, took a lead, began to take a leading role in, in coordinating all of that information. And they started producing bulletins um, which were fully hyperlinked to all of the information and research and resources uh, and it became a real go-to document. I think Nottinghamshire uh, local authority really uh, stood up and did a fantastic job um, as time went on uh, in producing enormous amounts of 
of easy to understand, easy to follow um, information that was very well resourced and backed up. Yeah, really, really positive stuff there. And just talking as well about kind of your staff workforce during this time, I can imagine it must have been very, very difficult for them in a crisis situation when, as we've talked about, the advice was sort of changing by the day and there were loads of different things going on. Um, How do you sort of maintain their morale during a crisis situation like that? I I think um, good communication and a very clear message right from the top is very important. And people understanding where that information has come from. So not just giving somebody a list of things to do, but actually explaining why we're doing it in that particular way. And that became important when sometimes we were asking people to do something in one way on one day. And a couple of days later, we were asking them to do something completely different um, as our understanding of the disease developed. Um, so it's really important that people understood why uh, we were asking them to do things so that then when we asked them to do something else, uh, we could also explain that as well. But it was important. It was <clears throat> something that went out simultaneously to everybody, um, that, but that we also followed that up on the floor by seeing people individually um, and checking in with them uh, to see that they were all right as a team and also as individuals. So it was very important to spend time with people, actually at the point when people didn't really want to um, spend time with anybody. I think it's interesting, isn't it, that you look at, obviously, COVID, what it's done to the industry and its workforce. You look at the absenteeism, you look at the staff turnover, but you look at organisations such as yourselves, who are very people-centric, have maintained that communication all the way through, obviously look to remunerate their workforce fairly as well. And you find, don't you, that despite the burnout, despite all of that, they're still willing to go above and beyond, aren't they, when you treat them properly? That's absolutely right. And I have a number of staff who spent time away from their families because they were worried about actually bringing the disease into the home. Um, And in fact, we managed to maintain ourselves as COVID-free for the entire first wave, uh, which was um, massively important because our medics, uh, in the country were desperately trying to find a way of being able to treat people. And the longer we could maintain ourselves as COVID-free, we knew that our patients would be safer because the solutions that the medical people in the hospitals were coming up with were becoming more sophisticated all of the time. Um, so the longer we could put off trying to have COVID in the home, uh, the better, really. Colleton itself was a real hotspot, and I think at one point was one of the uh, worst areas in the country for transmission of uh, of the virus. The one of the really useful pieces of information that was available from the government uh, was from the ONS, uh, where we were able to go and find out exactly where the hotspots were mm. um, and what the transmission rates were, and that was actually very useful. Um, But what it meant was that because we were within a very high transmission area, uh, obviously the things that we needed to do with PPE and testing uh, became really quite burdensome for the staff. And I think 
you know, have an overall long-term effect on people's stress levels. Um, and I'm reluctant to sort of go down, you know, sort of the mental health route and say, oh, mental health, mm. mental health. Uh, because as a mental health trained nurse, um, I think perhaps that has a slightly different connotation for me. Um, but I do think that it was an extraordinarily stressful time. And we're talking about chronic stress here, not mm. just something that was for one or two days, but things that went on for month after month and at one point seemed quite endless. Um, the remarkable thing is that we did manage to stay uh, COVID-free whilst all of the homes around us uh, were having enormously high mortality rates um, and one or two closures as well, mm. um, as in completely closing down the home, shutting up business. Um, and we were nowhere near that. Interestingly, we didn't get COVID until the second wave. And that, in fact, was brought into us by an ambulance driver who actually knew that he had COVID when he was delivering his patients. Um, we were obviously very disappointed about that. And that patient who was uh, delivered to us did, in fact, die of COVID as well. And also the person in the next bed. We had six deaths in total out of seven, a complement of 78 patients. Um, Four of those patients went into hospital COVID negative, uh, caught COVID in hospital and died in hospital. And two patients died on site of COVID, uh, it having been brought in by an ambulance man. Um, and that's just very disappointing. But I understand the pressures that the ambulance service were under uh, in order to maintain themselves as staff. So, I'm sure they might have um, perhaps taken themselves into work when perhaps they shouldn't have done. Mm. Quite similar to that, actually. Um, there was the High Court judgment the other week, wasn't there, where the government sort of framework early on in the pandemic of actually discharging hospital patients sort of into care homes without sort of proper testing regimes being in place and without sort of proper isolation uh, frameworks being in place. I don't I don't actually understand why. We had a very, very strict rule in place, mm. which we put in place as a care home and which we are entitled to put in place. Um, we are the people, ultimately, who say who can come into our home. Um, and because the hospital wants to discharge somebody to you, does not mean that you have to take that person who is being discharged so we insisted upon people being tested before they were returned to us. Um, but equally, we stopped taking patients uh, in March 2020. So we actually closed our doors to taking new patients. A lot of care homes um, decided that they weren't going to do that. That was their choice to take those patients. So I can't understand um, entirely. I do understand we were put under enormous pressure. I mean, we were actually shouted at, sworn at. Um, we were treated very poorly uh, because we closed our doors. Um, and especially um, as it was seen that we had some empty beds, uh, which we did. But I would rather have those empty beds than have COVID brought into the home. Um, ultimately, 
the registered manager or the people who own the home makes the decision about who is going to be admitted into that home and the circumstances that they are going to be admitted in. Uh, we insisted on tests being done. It made us extremely unpopular. Um, the um, NHS staff, who were under horrific pressure, really didn't want us saying no or putting barriers in the way. But I felt that in order to keep our patients safe, that that's what we needed to do, and that's what we did. And it just goes to show, doesn't it, that given that you only had a case of COVID in the home during that second wave, that was the right decision to make at the time. Yeah. But equally, um, you've got to have staff who are robust enough to be able to put up with, quite frankly, what at times could only be called bullying uh, from our National Health Service uh, colleagues. Very interesting point. And how would you sort of kind of talk to your staff about that? Because we talked about morale already within a crisis situation, but when something like that is going on, how do you sort of build your staff up to be able to kind of deal with a challenge like that? So we decided right at the start that we would have our own um, um, team for dealing with um, the COVID uh, situation. So that was myself, and I was dealing with all matters to do with contracts, uh, funding fees, uh, the running of the business, um, uh, all the HR uh, type issues. Uh, an extremely competent uh, registered manager uh, and also a director of uh, buildings and facilities. So the three of us together had got um, our outline duty with regard to COVID, which we made sure that staff uh, and everybody else were really aware of um, who was looking at what. So that if they had any questions or queries at all, they knew exactly who to go to to ask. Um, so everything to do with clinical care uh, fell to our registered um, uh home manager who's also a highly qualified nurse mm -hmm. uh, everything to do with buildings equipment ppe um uh, hygiene uh and supplies uh was down to the director of, of uh, buildings and facilities and everything else came under my remit we made sure that we spoke to each other every couple of hours sometimes day and night as things uh, actually really started to uh, become very serious uh, within the country. Um, and we made sure that we were actually on call. It was very, very tiring. Um, and we had to make sure that we had um, an ability to speak to each other and an honesty to speak to each other, that if we thought that one of the other members of the team was becoming erratic or burnt out, um, that we could actually... Um, basically put them on leave uh, until they'd rested uh, before they came back so mm. that people uh, although you're still under the stress of the whole situation uh, you're actually able to spot each other um, and um, so that you can actually stop people from getting to absolute burnout and I think that would have resonated a lot with 
various staff members um, as well, sort of looking out for them in that sense. And I think considering everything that's gone on over the last couple of years, we can talk about how carers have sacrificed so much, given so much for the cause of trying to get through the pandemic. And this is why it's all the more important that in the aftermath of that, their status sort of has to be elevated for the uh, for the good of the industry, just bringing us back onto sort of that present challenge now. It just shows the importance, doesn't it? And I think given that immense goodwill... I, I, think, there were, I yeah. think there were some other things going on there as well. We got, um, as time went on, we got some absolutely um, fantastic support um, from uh, within the National Health Service um, from people who were liaising uh, between uh, uh, um, the, the hospitals and um, uh, carers, uh, either in care homes or uh, for home care. Um, and um, um, a gentleman called David Ainsworth, who um, really advocated for um, looking at new and alternative ways where we could uh, maintain treatment within the home. So, for example, we piloted a couple of things. Firstly, we piloted um, a, a drug regime uh, and oxygen regime within the care home, which we were able to do because we have um, a high ratio of registered staff uh, in physiotherapies, occupational therapists uh, and nurses. Um, so we were able to uh, pilot uh, with the support of our GPs who were really quite outstanding. Um, uh, and that meant that uh, we were able to maintain people within the home instead of having to admit them to hospital. And it also meant that we had uh, kinder outcomes for our patients uh, in helping them to breathe uh, if they caught COVID. Uh, so we did, in the second wave, have, although we didn't have so many fatalities, just two on site, I'll say just, that's enough, isn't it? Um, but, um, and, and not to diminish how horrible that is to their relatives, but um, we did have people who caught COVID, but because we were able to use some of these new drug, drug regimes, uh, which was a really novel approach, um, uh, we actually were able to maintain people within the care home uh, and have good outcomes in people recovered from COVID. We also um, were piloting uh, the use of something called Techie Health, uh, which was a remote monitoring system uh, that could be used uh, to monitor patients in great detail, um, direct to the uh, GP surgery. Uh, and that's something that actually has been very successful and we're going to um, try and expand that so that we can actually use it with specialists and, um, and not just with the GPs. Uh, but that's something to come over this next year. So there are some, you know, really good things that came out of COVID in terms mm. of the collaboration of working, the trying of new things, um, understanding different ways of working, um, and um, the introduction of a number of different technical um, uh, solutions such as Techie Health, such as the SAC Communication Notice Board. Um, so although COVID was a really terrible and desperate thing, um, it would be wrong to think that nothing good came out of it. But really there are some 
fantastic moves forward that have come out of this. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think there are some real positives in among all the tragedy that we can take from COVID and there are lessons that we can learn and sort of take into the future. And um, now that we're sort of out of the acute phase, when we think about sort of strategic planning for the future and for the next challenges that the industry is having to face, what are some of the main things, Angela, that you'd say that sort of you're preparing for over the uh, the next 12 months and beyond? So the biggest thing that um, is an issue for us is um, uh, well two things firstly um, the face of healthcare um, and what that means for in terms of community provision is definitely uh, changing Um, I'm not privy to um, uh, what those changes actually are uh, or where uh, the local authorities the CCGs or the uh, joined up thinking is actually going to take that because generally speaking, that's all put in place and then we're told at the last moment uh, that that's how it's going to be. Or people just um, stop uh, commissioning particular services without any notice. So that, that can be a difficulty because obviously it takes a lot of time, effort and money uh, to make sure that services are set up. So in order for us to continue to be offering a relevant service, something that is uh, something that our, our customer wants to buy um, and something that is useful for the end user, which is the patient. So we've got our customers and our end users. Um, then really, uh, we need to be part of those conversations earlier because it takes time to set up these services. It takes time. And this, again, comes back to an earlier point if you completely undervalue the people that are delivering the service mm. and you think that all you've got to do is issue a diktat and say, this is what we want, um, you're never going to get the best service because actually, if you'd worked with those people like myself, we'd be able to trim our own services. We'd be able to retrain our own staff alongside your thought processes or these people's thought processes so that then when they wanted those services, those services would be immediately available to them because we've been able to keep our um, uh, service relevant to to the um, changing needs. The needs do need to um, constantly alter. Um, When I think about the service that we offered in 2008 when we entered the market, that is dramatically different to what our service offering is now. Um, and I think, uh, I know a lot of people complain about uh, a lot of the regulations that are there and um, uh, and the CQC uh, type regulations. But the reality is, if you look at the standard of care that is delivered now compared to the standard of care that was available in 2008, that is fundamentally changed for the good uh, because of, the introduction of the regulations as they have been. Mm. And they might have been clumsily applied and they might have been applied in a way that isn't necessarily consistent across the piece. But the overall effect is that the standard of care has and continues to rise. That in itself places a burden upon providers in terms of the cost of actually putting all that constant improvement in place. Um, But 
you know, that's something that that's part of the playing field that we're on. You know, and if we decide that we want to be playing this particular game, then that is what we need to set our stall out to do. Um, so I think it's a, it's a very, um, there's always a lot of plates in the air that are spinning. Mm, there are, aren't there? It is a delicate balancing act and there's a lot to, uh, of course, to deal with and plenty of challenges for the industry to get its teeth stuck into. And, and I um, think yeah. also, so if, we, so if we think also in terms of challenges, so we've got the, the rising uh, uh, standard, the constant rising standard, the fact that that is mm. not always um, interpreted uh, consistently uh, across the piece. We've got challenges to do with the provision of service in terms of, well, what is the provision that people are actually wanting to see? We've got a lack of joined up thinking between uh, the various um, silos that definitely still exist. And obviously we've got um, issues to do with uh, staffing and um, remuneration for the care that is actually given, either in terms of the fees that we receive or in terms of the, the pay that we need to make sure that our staff and the training that we make sure that our staff receive. Uh, I think those are the main challenges. Yeah, definitely. And um, thinking about now sort of where you would see your organisation in 12 months time just before we wrap up, Angela, in an ideal world, say this time in 2023, how do you see sort of Pathfinders in sort of taking those challenges in your stride and what are you really hoping to achieve in this next year? So we have uh, been aiming to become a fully nurse-led organisation and I'm really proud to be able to say that we actually sponsor our own uh, staff uh, to undertake uh, training at the universities for uh, nurse associates, uh, but also um, there are pathways that are coming through for occupational therapists, speech and language therapists and physiotherapists. One of the things that it's very difficult for is for not everybody can afford to go to university um, and a lot of people don't even realise that they might want a university education until a little bit later in their life and by that time they might have rent, mortgage, children um, and so the usual route to university uh, is a massive bar for people who actually have got the intellectual and um, values uh, uh, right values to enter registered uh, care provision so uh, and to become registered professionals uh, because the cost of doing um, uh, a degree would mean that they would have to leave formal employment um, mm. in order to pursue a university career for three or four years uh, whilst they do that and that is prohibitive to a lot of people. However, over this last couple of years, um, the universities and the local authorities have been working closely together. And in fact, um, uh, we now sponsor um, six people a year to become um, uh, nurse associates. So by the time we get to 2023, we will have our first qualified uh, nurse associates actually mm-hmm. going on staff who we've actually trained and some of those will then also go through the route 
to uh, convert that into becoming a registered nurse. We've also got somebody who uh, by that point uh, will largely have finished her speech and language therapy part-time degree, which will sponsor her to do that because she can do it part-time. So where degrees are made part-time or where they are put into apprenticeship mode, that means that we can sponsor our staff in a way that we can't when it is um, a pure degree that somebody has to leave work in order to go and do. So I anticipate that by the time we get to 2023, our shortage of registered staff will really start to ease because we will have overseas nurses coming to us who actually will have gone through their conversion courses with the NMC. Uh, we will have our nursing associates and we will have our own um, homegrown nurses again, which is what we always used to do when there was a diploma route before the diploma route was closed off. Um, so I'm really pleased that we're able to do that. Um, I would anticipate um, that um, we will have fully opened uh, all of our um, complex units at that point. We're, we're actually split into six wards, so to speak, six units. Um, and so um, the level of complexity that is rolled out to the unit depends on the skill mix that we've got. So as more people complete to gold level uh, on, their, uh, on their training, uh, that means that the level of complexity that we can take within the care home uh, increases. That in itself means that um, we're actually able to relieve the hospitals uh, of patients uh, who otherwise would potentially become stuck in beds because the level of complex care that they mm. need uh, is too difficult to send to the usual care home. Um, and so these people become stuck in high dependency beds in hospital, which is a terrible thing for the patient because their quality of life could be higher uh, than within a hospital because the hospital is there to treat illness, uh, not to necessarily uh, allow people to have a high quality of life. So when they come to us, uh, they don't need the treatment as such, but they do need a high level of intervention, uh, but they also need the opportunity to uh, be able to live their lives uh, more fully than they could on a hospital ward. Um, so we will have all of those beds open because our skill mix uh, will be at a much higher level. Um, I would anticipate that um, our level of difficulty in terms of recruiting non-registered health uh, um, staff at that point should have started easing. I think there are a number of things that will help us with that. Firstly, I think towards the end of this year, a lot of the difficult a lot a lot of the difficulties that a number of companies have uh, will actually mean that a number of companies will probably close down, not care companies specifically, mm. I mean business in general. I think a lot of companies that we might call zombie companies uh, will start to close or find it too difficult to keep staff on. Those staff will therefore go back into the market uh, and hopefully we will look attractive uh, as a career option. Um, so I'm anticipating that by 2023, and I might just have my rosy glasses on here, uh, we should really have turned the corner 
in terms of staffing issues. Mm, very optimistic outlook and that optimism is incredibly infectious and it's important as well that things are really going on to try and address that because a robust health and uh, a robust social care sector rather sort of helps alleviate that pressure on the NHS by stopping people going into long-term hospitalisation and as you say making training more accessible to that adult workforce that's out there rather than just focusing on pathways for younger people, that's going to be one way that we really alleviate those stuffing issues. So some incredibly think, important I points. I think one of the things that I would really like to see developed is I would really like, um, we try very hard to get people back into their own homes because our our age, the age group of our patients is so much younger. Um, really, we shouldn't be seen, unless somebody is with us for end-of-life care, um, we shouldn't be seen as their last stop. Um, we should be seen as an interim to people going back to live within their own homes. Um, and I would like to be able, at the moment, there just aren't they, there aren't the facilities out there for sending uh, people home uh, with uh, uh, who re- require a large amount of intervention and care. It, it can be done, but it few and far between and I think one of the things that we're seeing at the moment is we're seeing that falling over an awful lot because the staff aren't there or they're not trained adequately um, or there is an inconsistency of care there and we know that that happens because those people end up coming back to us uh, almost uh, like a turnstile really um, in that um, it would be nice to be able to keep people out in the community Um, so that we can take people from hospital, wean them off the sort of extremely high level of care, put in place um, a package, uh, and then actually get people home. Uh, And I would like to be able to see a lot more of that by 2023. Mm. Let's certainly hope that that indeed does come to pass. Um, Angela, I have to say it's been an immense pleasure and incredibly enlightening to have you join us on the uh, the programme today. And I think as soon as we start to see kind of, you know, the misclearing a little bit and we understand what kind of course the industry is taking over the next 12 months, I'd absolutely love the opportunity to welcome you back onto the industry and just see exactly what is changing, if anything, because there's a lot we talked about today. And let's hope that the course that we take from here is a positive one. Thank you very much indeed for the opportunity. It's been a real pleasure, Angela, and uh, by all means as well, please do continue to take care and stay safe with all that's still going on. Okay, thank you. It was an immense pleasure welcoming Angela Knoll from Pathfinders Care onto today's programme, and I do hope that everybody tuning in thoroughly enjoyed this interview in which we discussed some of the key issues affecting health and social care at the present time. Uh, remember everybody if you were tuning in and you've been affected by any of the issues that we have discussed today or you even run your own business or organization with its own story to share with us in any sector then please do apply to be on the program via leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply because we would also love to hear from you as well until next time to every single one of our regular listeners please do take care and goodbye